Hi, and welcome to Be More Now. My name is Blake Moore, and tonight I'm interviewing multidisciplined alchemist and sound science teacher Randolph Masters. Known by its students affectionately as Randy, Masters is an award-winning composer, a professional multi-instrumental musician, frequency and sacred geometry consultant, and university music teacher. Over the next hour, we'll be talking about the future of healing as it pertains to music, frequency, and architecture. Don't be fooled by the heady topic, because Randy and his research and his lofty ideas are down to earth and incredibly easy to access. But first, before I start, here's one of Randy's many songs. It's called You Are What You Feel, and it's from his 1976 album called Voices, featuring his group known as Solar Plexus. Enjoy this Brazilian bossa nova and samba in 7-4 time. Never felt so real. 
<laughs> yes, indeed, you are what you feel. <laughs> what a great number. So before I bring on Randy Masters, I want to tell you a bit about him. So Randy Masters has a BA in music and film, a master's and PhD in divinity, and is a multidisciplined alchemist and award-winning composer, professional musician, and multi-instrumentalist, and a former university music teacher at UCSC and San Jose State University. He is also the designer of sacred geometry and sound products. He is a wellness facilitator for sound healing, spiritual counseling, regenesis, and universal white time. He combines his expertise as a composer with several record albums and feature music scores, harmonic mathematician, and background in esoteric and exoteric sciences to reveal the precise harmonics of our universal life field. He is an international lecturer, author, and respected specialist in his field who is often sought out for his expertise in many projects. Furthermore, Randy is an in-depth researcher on the pyramid, sacred sites, and the mathematical language of light in the harmonics of sacred numbers. His not-so-mystery school in Aptos, California, features weekend intensives in sacred geometry, tuning forks, sound, and music, and ancient esoteric studies. A gifted speaker, his students and colleagues are inspired to study and grow, and he is a devoted spiritual and academic mentor to all in his world. His universal song resonant connections classes help connect the dots of a far more loving and intelligent universe leading to more respect of our own and others' worlds. Resonant Living, his company, produces products that are tuned to the universal harmonics and the world of geometry, sacred sites, and ancient musical traditions. His specialty products include tuning forks, desktop and wind chimes, CDs calibrated to specific natural frequencies. His sacred geometry jewelry is made with harmonically balanced stones. And here is our conversation from late last week. I have Randy Masters here with me. It is such a pleasure to get to share you with our listening audience because you are such an inspiration. I've been studying with you for the last almost year through the sound healing some of your sound healing courses and the Globe School, but also some other courses on the side with you. And you are one of the most tuned in individuals that I've ever encountered. So it is just really, it's just an honor to be able to have this extra hour with you. Well, thank you. Tuning in for extra adventures here. <laughs> Why don't you share a little bit about your background so the audience knows who you are and how you got interested in, in vibration, frequency, and sound? I initially started with an interest in music and started as a little kid playing and learning instruments, taught myself the piano. Um, and then I started formal lessons on the trumpet in the fourth grade. And then when I was in high school, I became a professional musician then with the Musicians Union playing professional gigs. Then when I was a freshman in high school, I was my first groups. And then I picked up guitar as well, starting in high school. And then I, um, in university, I majored in music and film and uh, wrote music starting in, when I was in high school. And I started recording in the 70s, made a number of albums. I had a group called Solar Plexus. It was an international jazz group uh, with a lot of cultural influences, original music. We did four albums and some KQED specials and things like that, a lot of fun. 
played with uh, Hedjoli Sounds from Africa for 15 years. They were the national band of Ghana, but all our performances were done here in the U.S. And so I had a lot of experiences with groups like that one from Africa and other groups I played with from Brazil and Puerto Rico, Cuba, Mexico, salsa groups. I had a a group playing Indian raga rock mixture called Sitar Power with Ashwin Batish on sitar and tablas and a great group, uh, Myron Dove on bass, who was one of Santana's uh, bass players. So it was excellent. So a lot of small group work. I played for a very short time in the symphony and found that just wasn't my groove. So uh, uh, mine was more in jazz, rock, pop music and that type of thing. And so uh, I kept going on that and teaching. I started teaching in my senior year in college, and I taught for 10 years at UC Santa Cruz where I created a jazz program that I ran myself and then later went and taught for seven more years at San Jose State, and I taught at a few other junior colleges in the, at the same time, like Foothill College and uh, De Anza and West Valley so I did all of that up until about 89. In the 80s, I started getting into sacred geometry and doing a lot of work on the pyramids and research, and I connected with Wes Bateman, who was a telepath. He wrote a lot of very interesting books. And we worked on translating the measurements in the pyramids and finding the harmonic codes, and I discovered a whole musical underpinning of the measurements in the pyramids. So that was really exciting. And I learned a lot about physics and quantum physics and other things through that particular work. And then I started teaching um, sacred geometry many, many years ago. I've been teaching music nonstop since 68, but starting, starting somewhere around uh, 89 uh, and 90, started teaching sacred geometry. And that's why, like, I have two careers, one in the, the music and sound, and then uh, also the geometry part. And then I had a company for over 30 years that has tuning forks manufactured according to my research, and I saw tuning forks around, and then I got into applying sacred geometry to some other company as a freelance uh, consultant, and I designed sacred geometry jewelry based on a lot of my knowledge of gemstones and and also, you know, study and teach gemstone healing. So I, it's kind of a combination of a lot of lifetimes in one body is basically what it, what what's going on with me. They're connecting the dots because I've been down deep down different rabbit holes in this lifetime at least and others. And so uh, what I'm bringing about is that uh, common denominators about vibration and how it plays out in our creation. So that's that's a good start there. That's a wonderful start. I know you've done some work in Egypt, as you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit more about your experiences in Egypt and how, you know, as a tuning fork person, you've gone from music and performance into the frequency of music and understanding harmonic and principles of, of mathematics as they relate to our musical understanding, kind of this creation of all things and you've taken it into the esoteric qualities where most of us kind of stop it, you know, listening to some of your amazing samba music or going into something else. Can you talk about how that really opened up for you? Well, I went way deep into the esoteric understandings of mu music and mystery school understandings of music by a lot of the ancient mystics, 
throughout music history and history, and uh, then seeing common denominators between the ratios in sacred geometry and the ratios in music in the analogs there. So I made it a, a very important point to link up sacred geometry and music through ratio and proportions. And so that's been real fun, and I make tuning forks based on sacred geometry as well as things out of sound. So in going to Egypt after having studied a lot about it in this life, I uh, took a lot of different tuning forks down there to play in these temples and listen to the different resonances. Uh, I doubt if anybody has brought uh, as many tuning forks tuned to ancient Egyptian knowledge <laughs> back to Egypt. So it's kind of like I'm saying, I hear you. What do you think of this? You know, this is what I've been doing. And uh, that was a lot of fun to hear them resonating in the temples, where every room in some of the temples is has a different resonation and a different frequency. They're all tuned to the different chakras, like at uh, the Sobek Temple along the Nile. They have these different small rooms. Each room is designed for resonating a different chakra. So that's a lot of fun to play tuning forks that go along with the acoustics and the architecture in the, in those uh, buildings. And then when I was in the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid, on my uh, second trip to Egypt, I co-led three so far, and I, I haven't been going back since. There's a lot of things going on in the world, and I just haven't felt like doing any any more tours for a while. But uh, I was my uh, co-leader on the trip, and I were preparing the room for uh, the rest of our group, and I was laying in the sarcophagus, toning, making sounds, and all of a sudden all the electricity went out, and in the whole pyramid, and um, like light bulbs, that kind of thing. And the ceiling was all of a sudden coated with like an electric blue-white vibration. And I found that really, really interesting. So something I was doing with the sound ignited something. Uh, I wasn't knowing that that was what was going to happen, and I wasn't exactly uh, set on uh, a definite goal other than just to see what would happen if I was allowed to just let go with my voice and do whatever I wanted to do? So that was a very, very interesting uh, for me to do, to do that type of thing. You know, so I've been studying the math of that and worked with a, a famous author, telepath Wes Bateman, who passed away a few years ago. And um, our book that we were going to do together was called Drums of Ice, Harps of Fire. And it was about the musical decoding that I've been doing uh, with the pyramid. And he passed away, and we didn't get to do that. But I still have all my information for, you know, applications going into the future, going forward, as they say. Um, and I'm looking at, uh, and I did quite a bit of work with uh, doing sound healing and studying healing with different practitioners. I know a lot of different healing modalities. And so I... Uh, applied tuning forks combined with that and with uh, light and uh, studying the relationships between light and sound. Uh, since back in the 70s when I started studying the uh, Dinshaw Gaudiali color method called spectrochrome therapy. And so I made tuning forks to his uh, research. And he wanted, before he died, Dinshaw Gaudiali, the researcher, to create a 72-color uh, system, and he had a 12-color system, so I discovered how to do that, 
and his son runs his health society in Malaga, New Jersey, the Dinshaw Health Society. So I let him know that uh, I had finished that part of his father's work. It's not that somebody needs to go out and buy 72 tuning forks, but um, there's different ways. I can put those into computer sounds. I can, uh, you know, make different kinds of chimes. There's things. I make wind chimes and chimes also tuned to these things. So I'm looking at the different ways that um, sound can be played in different environments and what can happen uh, in that environment and how it helps raise. My goal is raising of consciousness. Um, and healing can come as a result of raising consciousness. So I'm kind of doing a, a top-down orientation toward healing rather than a bottom-up pushing through symptoms that keep moving around in the body and people keep generating new symptoms or the symptoms move from one place to the other. So it's kind of endless. I want to get to the shift of consciousness that can make a permanent change in whatever the challenges are that people are having. And that is the voice of Randy Masters, who is a sound alchemist, teacher, and amazing human being and researcher. Keep on listening. Mm, I love does that, that give you an idea? Oh, it certainly does. That, that understanding that there's a frequency that's inherent in all things, and that unlocking that key contains a lot of healing and a lot of deeper understanding that is actually around us all the time, but we, we haven't dove deep enough to understand it, right? And you're, you're the front of the comet, deep diver person. Yeah, definitely yeah. doing deep dives. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it is a esoteric math relationship that I think most musicians understand because it's a math. Music is math. and They can say that. You know, they, they talk about the math, Go but ahead. not that many of the musicians actually get in and work the math the way I am. Yeah. They know that there's a math, the math in there, and and that's pretty much enough for them, a lot of them. They play great, you know. They may even be famous, but it's not like they get in there with the calculators like I do and really get down to every little decimal point and what it means and what it relates to. And, and so I have a sort of a knack for that harmonic decoding and looking for uh, patterns and things like that. And that's what I've, and I've made many discoveries in different areas of science that I will eventually write about um, as a result of seeing how the numbers play out both in in physics and chemistry and uh, sound and geometry, all of that, uh, there's this amazing world of creational numbers that might be or archetype numbers that the creator uses. And I love it. So that's what I have a passion for that. This is, of course, all musicians, not all, but a number of musicians ask this question or have been thinking about this. And, of course, there's so much written on the Internet is this idea about tuning and frequency and tuning, say 432 versus 440 and how that impacts our music. And I know you have an opinion on that. You want to speak to 432 versus 440? Well, I think the first part is that there's a lot of disinformation on the Internet by a lot of people that I don't think really know what they're talking (laughs) about. You think? (laughs) Yeah. And it's very interesting. So they get off on stuff. They're making their own conspiracies, basically. That's the way I look at that. 440 is not a bad number. I mean, if you do a certain measurement of the Great Pyramid, there's 440 of a certain cubit uh, in the base 
length of the pyramid, which averages somewhere between 750 and 756 feet. So depending on what cubit you use, 440 of those creates the base length, just to give you an idea. And, and lower octaves of 440 is 55, which is a number in the um, Fibonacci series. And, of course, for some people, they know 55, you know, because they want to retire, or that's a speed limit that they see a lot. But, it, you know, it goes a lot deeper than that. So, and there's been a lot of good studies of music tuned to a, a 440 as the reference point. That doesn't mean they played in A major or A minor. It just means the tuning system that they use referenced around an A440, which I had used most of my life, actually. And then um, in 1980, I, I, I bought a new piano and put it into my music studio, and I had it tuned to Venus, which was 442.459 hertz, because I wanted that love energy of Venus to be something that every time I played my piano, that's what I was in in sync with. So, and I kept that tuning for maybe I don't know twenty years, and that did have an effect. And I I was a music director for a group called Tokara from Mexico, and um, I had them tuning to that Venus note because the the flute that they had, the Andean Bolivian type flutes that they had, uh, resonated more with that higher pitch. And I felt like there was a lot more love in the group when we tuned to that than there was when we tuned to 440. If I used a keyboard, most of the keyboards then were tuned to 440, so I had to um, go with that tuning versus uh, a keyboard that you would retune or whatever. Now, 432, that used to be Paris standard tuning way back, and that was the tuning frequency that Verdi, Giuseppe Verdi, the composer, used. And... The number 432 relates to so many sacred numbers in the universe, like 432,000 miles in the radius of the sun average, uh, 2,160 miles in the diameter of the moon. Uh, so if you twice 216 is 432. And then different angles taken out of the faces of... Um, the different platonic forms, um, you know, 432 is part of that tuning system where all the angles as numbers are, would be notes in a, in a particular chord or scale. And the 432 just shows up all over the place. A lower octave, 108, the number of beads and the mala beads, always you're using 108. Uh, dodecahedron, two edges meet on a face at 108 degrees. So the amount of uses of octaves of 432 um, are really profound. And there's a lot of talk about how Goebbels and the uh, top Nazi dude, you know, uh, tried to get everybody on 440, um, you know, instead of 432. Well, they weren't all on 432 then, by the way. And... Um, and then I think about, well, okay, what are the Nazis doing? You know, they're listening to Wagner, and some of those recordings probably were even tuned to the orchestra at 440, or, you know, not necessarily at a 432. So um, it gets really interesting to see what their intent was. In the manufacturing of musical instruments, 
they had a big meeting, I think 1953, somewhere around there, where they tried to standardize the tuning. So if you have a set, let's say a set of vibraphones tuned to equal tempered tuning and a 440, you could go to Europe or Russia or China or anywhere and play and you would be in tune. Otherwise, if you go certain places and now they're tuning to 432 or 444, you can't, you have to have a special custom set of keys for your vibraphone to play. And that's just very impractical, as a matter of fact. Um, so there was a, uh, they wanted to standardize. Now, I had a lot of my trumpets were made in, in France and flugelhorns, cornets, things like that. And they played a little better lower pitch, actually. And if I, anybody who had an instrument made in the days when the acoustics uh, for manufacturing centered around 432, that was the groove of their musical instrument more than 440. 440 kind of was too high, had too much tension, and the instrument would fall out of its groove. So there's a lot of very interesting things about both. I saw photographs that Fabian Maman, a famous music uh, therapist, he's also an acupuncturist and a Tai Chi master. He did studies of blood studies under a microscope in a hospital, subjecting the blood to all the notes uh, in an A40 equal tempered uh, tuned uh, octave. And the picture from A440 was a beautiful angel. It was the most beautiful of all the notes. And it was very interesting. So um, I think you might say the jury is out on that. Depends on what you want to achieve. Um, another friend of mine, another sound healer, uh, Christopher Timms, told me, because he was part of the study group with Zachariah Sitchin, and he said that, well, Zachariah Sitchin had found in the Sumerian tablets that they had tuned to a 440. Well, hertz didn't exist then, so 440 hertz, that term. So I'm not really sure how did they know that. And he said that the ancient Sumerians also were using equal tempered tuning. Now, for making music, equal tempered tuning is very interesting, but it's not found in nature at all. It's a complete mathematical thing uh, out of uh, mental mathematics. And it's very useful for being able to play in any key at any time. And so Bach explored it uh, back in the Baroque era, and he wrote his well-tempered clavier to explore the ability to write music in any key at any time, major, minor keys, whatever. And that was interesting. Um, and then it began to dominate after that more and more. But Bach used all kinds of tunings. He was a math master. So when he would compose a piece, he would compose a piece to be used in a certain tuning. That was part of understanding the math of the music, not just playing pieces he wrote, not for equal tempered tuning, but playing it in equal tempered tuning and playing it at a 440, which Bach didn't use. The Baroque era often had 415, which is a half step lower, like a G sharp or an A flat then. So well, there's a lot of misinformation and things going on. And the conspiracy people just, just love to jump on the putting down 440. But, you know, I played a lot of music, beautiful music and listened to a lot of beautiful music tuned to 440. And uh, so I'm not complaining about that. I do feel the 432 is more relaxed. And a lot of different things in the body seem to easily resonate with the 432. So there's that's my uh, 
as politically correct as I can be in the moment. <laughs> Download on that. <laughs> that was really well said because I think that you can take I a breath now. Who, it's okay to breathe. Once you discover some of this information, because you also teach a class called the Secret History of Music, and once yeah. some of this stuff starts getting revealed, and and it's not some big secret. It's just nobody's been talking about it. I like to dance, and I'm a very minor player, but I know that I feel the math in my body, which is what makes me dance. I've always been into math. So the closer understanding of music and math, it's not just in the notes on the piano or the different scales. It's so much deeper. It's really exciting. But I think a lot of people, once they hear this 432 versus 440 and then the connection to Nazi Germany and this I know people who, I won't listen to that kind of music anymore. I'll only listen to this. And, and it's like, well, don't throw away the whole bathtub because there's amazing stuff that still makes you feel good and still takes you places. And I think that our tendency is this all or nothing, black or white, and we forget that balance. And I think you're so good at conveying that understanding. Well, it's important. That's what I bring out in the history of music uh classes according to sound healing you know is to look at those esoteric things i mean music preceded the spoken languages it actually comes from music and it preceded light in the beginning was the word sound and vibration then light and then light and sound work together but they're different so i get into deep things about that uh taught by a lot of the different mystics and, and people uh, and what do they tune to? I mean, uh, Ali Akbar Khan tunes to 268.8, which is a, technically a D-flat note. And um, one of my Indian sitar friends asked him, why do you tune to that? He says, well, that's just what I hear. Well, I did some work on study of matter and antimatter by a scientist named Edward Ostrander. He wrote a two-volume set about matter and antimatter. And um, he found that 4,000... 303 hertz was a frequency that came out of the Milky Way, which is basically like a high C-sharp uh, note. But when you take that note down by octaves, dividing it by two a whole bunch of times, you get 268.9375, uh, which is really close to 268.8, you know? So I'm wondering, is Ali Akbar Khan hearing uh, this frequency coming out of the Milky Way, which Ostrander says is a frequency involved in the creation of matter. So I took that matter seriously, and I make tuning forks to it. <laughs> and a lot of people have really uh, enjoyed working with that particular frequency in some octave or another. They don't always have to play it. I mean, that's a half a step higher than the highest note on my 88-key piano, you know, be the 89th key, you know. But... Um, uh, I, I look at I look at clues like that and tune to it, and I make tuning forks and, and chimes and have people listen to it, explore it. I'm doing a lot of uh, exploring what can these frequencies do and what could we resonate to that would bring us up to a higher matrix of thought, a higher way of being would put us more in tune with really where we ought to be. Had uh, certain things not gone down through music history, we would be a lot more evolved and wouldn't have some of the messes we have in the world. So to me, the focus on consciousness is the number one thing. I think the main thing is that there's a war on consciousness going on now at multiple, multiple levels that include technologies and other things. And I think the best that we can do is work on our own consciousness to get it as tuned up and able to hear 
creation and respond properly and what to say yes to and what to say no to. So that's my okay. basic philosophy of all of that. But it involves sacred geometry too, being around certain shapes and how those res- shape resonance affects our consciousness. You know, that's one of the things that uh, they did in a lot of the rooms and in, in sacred temples is the architecture of the room would shape the brainwaves. The, the Hypogeum in Malta uh, is an underground temple carved out of solid rock and underground, and it puts out either 110 or 111 hertz, even with the wind blowing through there. And they made the temple resonate to that to put people into that high uh, gamma brainwave for the work that they had to do for raising consciousness. And they found a lot of the sacred sites around the world resonated either to 110 or 111. Well, 111 multiplied two octaves higher is 444, and 110, two octaves higher is 440. Now, if it were 432, those places would have resonated to 108, but they weren't. They also found that with uh, trees, they've done studies that trees communicate in sound frequencies through their root system. And the typical frequency that they are communicating on is 220 hertz, which is half of 440. And uh, they they communicate between 200 hertz, which is a a, D, uh, a G sharp, and uh, 300 hertz, which is a D sharp. And in that small interval of a fifth, perfect fifth interval, are the the frequency range that lots of the trees in their root systems are communicating. That's very interesting. So I asked the question, well, to myself at least, why are they doing 110 as the most common? Is that because we've been playing so much A440 music that they've heard the 110? You know, and they go, well, okay, yes, humans are all groove with you. You know, they get with it. You know, they're listening to somebody's ghetto blaster out in the forest, and they're turning to that. Uh, the trees went into sympathetic resonance with the humans. What? I mean, you know. It's a valid question. I don't really know the answer of what, exactly why that is. Well, I look at anything that I anywhere there's a number and somebody's measured something, and then I look at it musically. You know, 98.6 degrees for blood, things like that. I look at what that is, and when I analyze uh, temperatures of blood, I, I do it all with musical analysis, and I'm finding it everywhere I look like that. I'm seeing how the ratios in music play out in the rest of reality that I've been looking at. That's fun. Once again, I want to let you know you're listening to Be More Now. This is Blake Moore, and I'm speaking to resonant sound scientist Randy Masters. One of the questions that comes to mind is this idea that we're getting more advanced in our understanding of the way that life works, realizing that the esoteric and the scientific are starting to merge. And yet what seems to be happening is we're getting into deeper mysteries that we really don't quite understand. And I want to bring this around. We hear a lot about higher consciousness. And one of the things that I feel sound is so good at doing is it brings higher consciousness into the body. Everybody wants to float out of their bodies. I've heard so many meditations about leave your body and go fly through space and whatever, but our body is space. So the yogi in me wants to always use the sound to bring that frequency in. And I feel like higher consciousness 
embodied higher consciousness, like grounded higher consciousness. So that just came up while you were talking. And well, it's like circuits, I electric circuits. They have to be grounded. And a lot of people right? are uncomfortable here for various reasons. And, uh, and rather than maybe <laughs> handle, yeah, yeah, rather than handle the cause, they want to get out of their body. So they're like beside themselves all the time, you know, or a lot of the time. The only way to get the higher stuff working is you've got to get all the lower energy chakras all working, the survival stuff, the creative stuff, the power centers and the solar plexus. You've got to get all that stuff straightened out so that as you do go higher, you know, you don't create any problems. A lot of people who push it, they have uh, premature kundalini experiences and things, and some of them flip out. They have health problems. They have a lot of problems because they didn't do the homework to uh, pave the way by having the rest of the circuit be able to handle that level of energy. They tried to push it and skipped. they skipped over certain lessons, and as a result, they did not have the strength to deal with the uh, kinds of energies that their body began to uh, run run away with, in a sense. You know, I have the goal of the rainbow light body, as the Tibetans speak, where they can come and go as they please with and without their body. That was the goal of a lot of that their meditation and their techniques is develop that that rainbow body, and I believe in that. Integrating the different parts of ourselves here in this time space continuum, if yeah. you want to call it that. I want to just shift gears just a little bit because you, you do so many different things. And I know you've also done a lot of work with sacred architecture. That's a lot of fun. Well, because I'm looking at the bill. I don't agree with the phrase architecture is frozen music. And the reason, you know, that's a real popular phrase. And the reason why I don't agree with that is because the buildings are alive when they're done with sacred geometry. They breathe. They respond to creation in certain ways better than sick building syndrome, which a lot of architects create buildings that they've studied them and people get sick in those buildings for all kinds of reasons. Building material, they've cut off the ability of the earth energies to flow properly through the building. Uh, they've sighted the building over uh, ley lines that shouldn't be built on or ley lines that weren't corrected uh, and so on. And so when I have an opportunity with an architect who's open to it, uh, then I can give them lots of uh, my harmonic relationships to put into their design. One thing I found very interesting with architects is, well, see, you know, the architect of the Taj Mahal was killed by, you know, whoever I forgot right now who uh, commissioned it. And uh, he didn't want anybody else to build such a beautiful building. So he killed or had killed the architect. And that's happened to a lot of architects. They were built in the ancient times. They built something. When they completed their task, they were killed. So the ruler or pharaoh or whoever, um, you know, wouldn't have anybody else be able to duplicate that. You know, very crazy. Except the way it shows up is a lot of the architects I know who were doing regular architecture work, and maybe they were somewhat successful, uh, once they started getting into sacred architecture and sacred geometry, all of a sudden they had some challenges in their life. And what I, what was common is a lot of them had past life memories of having been an architect who was killed for doing the right thing. And I've noticed this craziness with architects. So I'm on guard any time I'm brought in with architects. I mean, what I mean is I'm alert 
so that they don't sabotage the projects. And I've had that happen. I understand. I mean, that. I saw it but as that's, a pattern. That's interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that that's a pattern we're all dealing with. As more people come online, we've all had a lot of questions. You know, we know that climate change is an issue, but then we also recognize that, let's say, nuclear waste is coming out of Fukushima into the ocean and being allowed. You know, there's a, a process right now that I know is being fought by a lot of environmentalists where they want to release more of the waste into the ocean. And we already know that when we're seeing this marine mammal washing up to shore and various things that we know, but yet that continues to happen because of the money. Well, that's part of the war on consciousness. It's not money that's evil. That's exactly right. It's a part of a doling out the information as it seems relevant to keep a certain structure in place. And that's the challenge I think we're all facing right now as all of this is moving so quickly is there's a consciousness shift happening and you can call it what you want, but I do believe music and frequency and just that understanding of allowing yourself because of you, you know, just working with tuning forks and how it's changed my sleep pattern. Well, we'll get the spoons next year, you know. Right now I'm getting <laughs> She's going to start putting spoon, bending spoons, <laughs> but, right? You know, with this... <laughs> Fukushima and stuff, you know, there's no excuse for that radiation other than it's being allowed on purpose to perpetuate. So there's no excuse because all the technology is available, not I say readily available because of politics, but exists to completely clean up Fukushima. And uh, that's being allowed for certain reasons. And that's a whole big deeper issue. Why is that being allowed? How was it created? understanding deeper nature of radiation. I mean, on a more far-out level, a lot of the beings from elsewhere that came here in the 1940s, you know, uh, UFOs and off-planet beings, one of the things they came here to do was warn humans that their nuclear use of nuclear energy was creating great disturbances in even in other star systems, not just in other planets. And um, they go, oh, they're waking up there on Earth again. Here they go again, another cycle on Earth where they've got the nuclear thing going on. They didn't learn from the last destructions, and here we go again. Their consciousness hasn't shifted. They're probably the same beings reincarnated again that created the disasters before. And they came to warn us because that nuclear, even from a test and even from nuclear uh, plants, that radiation creates disturbances for other civilizations far beyond our solar system. And so that type of thing uh, is not being looked at. And, of course, they came here to warn us about it. And uh, so did uh, Valiant Thor, who came from Venus. Now, this is far out. For those of you listeners, I'll give you a good, easy way to write me off if you need to. So I'm going to give you a <laughs> Feel free. If you haven't lived it, haven't seen certain things, I can't blame you. Don't believe it, you know. But when you've seen things, there's no arguing, arguing except with people who haven't, maybe. All right. So this fellow named Valiant Thor worked, I think it was the late 50s, worked in the Pentagon, and he came from Venus. Now, another dimension of Venus, not with the meltdown temperatures on the third dimension of Venus, but another dimension with cities and everything else that exists um, there. And his mission was to, and this is documented too, by the way, all of this. His mission documented, was to try to get... Wait, wait, can, can you say how it's documented just for the person in the audience? Is like, well, oh, what's it's documented been reported in government documents. 
and interviews uh-huh. and uh, some documentary things. There's been a talk talk about him, interviews, things written uh-huh. in books. Et cetera. Talk. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's all out there. You have to dig for it, okay. maybe. Now, so his mission was not accomplished because what he came here to do was to get earth beings away from the misuse of nuclear energy. And they didn't want to. They wanted the weapon ability. They wanted the power over. They wanted the pa- to wield that destructive power rather than clean energy. And that was a function of the consciousness and the warlike nature of human beings. So he went back to Venus after, I don't know how well, many years. He was here five to seven years, something like that, maybe longer. I'm, I forgot that part of the story. But the point was that uh, he came to warn Earth, hey, you know, this this is what can happen. Things like Fukushima, things like Chernobyl. Anyway, and there's interesting stuff going on with Chernobyl too. Now, with all kinds of um, vegetation that's grown there, there's things that you know really blew people's minds that shouldn't have happened for you know tens of thousands of years or whatever. Uh, there's some really good stuff happening with Chernobyl that people might want to look into that will change some of their thoughts about the nuclear, what what it can and can't do. But at certain levels, there's destruction. You see the destruction of creatures in the ocean from that and all the islands where the nuclear tests were done, Bikini Atoll and places like that, and what happened to the sea life. You know, So there is that part of humanity that can create its own next level of destruction by using uh, weapons with those kinds of energies. And it's happened over and over again throughout really the truly super ancient history of Earth. A lot of that's been buried because a lot of the land masses, like Atlantis and Lemuria, slipped underneath other plates on the Earth. And so you dive down there and you're not, they won't even find some of the things because of how the Earth plates covered it up and where it went. Um, but those lessons need to be learned because um, that's not the intelligent use of energy. That's a destructive use of energy. It misses the mark. Right. I think more and more people are starting to recognize. I have this line of a poem that comes to my mind, and I think of Nassim Harriman and some of his understanding of, like, basically creating a torus and a star inside of a globe that then can harness energy and some of the ways that we know Tesla was doing and this, this understanding of toroidal energy. And I have this poem that there's a star inside each and every one of us the star so bright, it shines despite the dull din of the default dream devised through decisions deferred. And even then, nobody can destroy the essence of who we are. We yeah. understand you're, you can feel the brightness of what you are inside and nothing can change that. And it's not a religion. It's not a, I mean, I have nothing against religion or whatever, but I have a line in that same poem that my only master is the mystery waiting behind my last exhale. And when you really think about that, that's like the ultimate who knows, right? You can be an atheist, you can be agnostic, you can be a Christian, you can be a Buddhist, whatever you are following the Torah, whatever you follow and is very much okay. And we all hit the same wall. Who knows? Right? Yeah, that's very profound. A little roomy with a view, you know. (laughs) 
ballroom is my my biggest inspiration in life. So nice. that would that would tie in. And you know what, Randy? I hate to say it, but we're getting super close to our end of time. And I, you're one of the most fascinating human beings uh, in my life. And um, I could say something like on the planet, but I think it all depends on on what everybody's interested in on their own. But let me see. I had a couple questions that I wanted. Well, we all have our God spark, um, you know, like you were talking about that, you know, star in a jar. And that's what needs to wake up. And advanced beings know that humans have that special spark. And so the war on consciousness is to try to keep that spark from waking up because a lot of problems are going to disappear when that spot, when those sparks wake up, you know. Because you know, I mean, and I've learned some things through you as well because of the work you've done with different inventors and that understanding that the technologies to solve so many of our problems already exist. You know, here we are in, on the coast of California dealing with drought, but yet we have the Pacific Ocean next to us, and we know other countries have success, successfully harnessed desalination plants, desalination plants, and then people say, well, but we don't have the energy to do it, but yet we understand, like, even some of the technologies used in our military, such as the Sterling Motor, where you can, there's so much that's mm-hmm. even better than solar. There's so much more that is already on this planet. It's being used to go off and explore space. And what about the space here on Earth? And so I think as more people start to recognize the narrative and what's being told to us, and it's not about you know fake news or not fake news. It's about really finding your own ground and your own center so you can see it and being open to the incredible human mind. We have, say, Einstein on a pedestal, and we've got certain minds that we've put in these places, but there are living Einsteins whose information just isn't being discussed. And that's Mm -hmm. the part that a lot of people chose not to go, let's say, the academic route because of all of the restraints and parameters put on that. And then other scientists whose work has been purchased, their patents quieted. And then suddenly Absolutely. that information isn't, isn't known. And I think that sounds like a big conspiracy to some people. But when you look at what humans are capable of, you really realize that there is so much more than meets the eye, so to speak, and that the true self set you free. And I think as a human collective, that working together, not dividing amongst each other over, you know, have or have not or, you know, what our, our fears are so prevalent right now and I completely understand and have a lot of compassion because it's a very unprecedented time to be alive and what can we do to bring that that light that that idea of higher consciousness into our body which is frequency and sound and so I'm really grateful that you're such a pioneer in these realms learning to meditate and breathe right and what you listen to, what you think, what you do that changes the vibrations. Every thought has its sound uh, implications in the body. Our thoughts are literally uh, can poison us and other people as well. A lot of people do not understand how destructive thought and constructive thought can be. Having the right quality of thoughts and what emotion that's put behind them and so on. Can you leave us with one practice? Because I'm really going to have to wrap this up. Can you leave us with one thing that we can do in our own lives that somehow has to do with frequency or something that could help us 
anyone who's interested, of course, to bring that. I try not to make it right or wrong, but bring that frequency that makes us feel safe and present into our bodies. Well, I, somebody I admire quite a bit has written a lot of books. Stuart Swerdlow has a technique uh, in his books. I highly recommend them. And he calls it the ultimate protection symbol. And what you do is you surround your body in a violet light tetrahedron, which has four sides, and each side is a triangle, a tetrahedron out of violet light. Then around that, you put an octahedron. An octahedron has eight triangular sides, like a pyramid, four pointing up and four pointing down with a square base. So you put a bigger violet light octahedron around the smaller violet light tetrahedron, and then you put a gold ring around the base of the uh, octahedron. And it lasts, it can last like up to about four days. But put that around your house, put it around your children, your animals, your pets, you park your car somewhere, put that around you. People put up a, a protection to give yourself a lot more grace to handle things that are going on. So um, I, I, I love that particular Thank technique. You. I've got lots of techniques like that that I teach in classes and, and so on. But that is easy to do, and um, anybody, can, anybody can do that and create a field where if there is some nonsense heading your way, it can bounce off, and it doesn't have to affect you or take you down or create any any serious problems from that or it may become mm -hmm. a, just a non-event because of that quality of light that you've created in that meditation so that would be one thing i would recommend for, and there's no one single sound frequency for that you know right and that can be done around the whole planet as well <laughs> exactly yeah totally you, you go on a bus yes. somewhere or a train or a plane you know uh and, and put that field around it to help everybody, you know, or around yeah. a bicycle, you know. And so I, I <laughs> well, recommend I, keeping that up every day, keeping up things like that, you know, and, and other things too, and meditating. Because they've you, done Andy. some studies that show that, um, well, Joe Dispenza did some studies that showed that by doing certain meditations, people could change the plasma in their blood, and then the spike proteins didn't bother them at all. And they, they showed that in the laboratory. They showed that people had gotten to a certain brainwave, and that brainwave restructured their blood. And then when they put uh, a certain, uh, quote-unquote, uh, virus or bacteria in there, the blood had a different energy field and was no problem whatsoever. And he's, been, he's proven it with scientists. And he's done doctors, a lot of really interesting work. Right. Cool, huh? So cool. And I, I, we are thoroughly out of time, and I could talk to you forever, and perhaps we'll have you back because there's about 10 questions I never got to. <laughs> so thank well, you I'm so much, Randy, for anybody your listening. Thank you, Randy You're Masters, thanks for, for having being me such on a master. Today. Yeah, thanks. definitely. Thanks for having <laughs> Okay. Hope that anybody listening will have benefited from something that I said. And, you know, it's like a buffet. You don't have to eat all the food on the buffet. Feel free to not believe any of it. I'm not attached to it. I'm just living it the best that I can and share, you know. That's a beautiful spirit. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Randy You're Masters, for, for having being me such on a today. master. Thanks for having me. Okay. <laughs>
All right. Well, that wraps up my interview with the amazing Soundstronaut Randolph Masters. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you want to listen to this show again or catch past episodes of Be More Now, go find Be More Now on kzux.org and click on the link to the show archives. And you can also visit me, the show, at bemoreu.net, and that's just the letter B without the E on that one, and check out the listen page. I've also got the show podcast on Spotify, so you can share it with folks outside of our county. And in honor of the spirit of New Orleans, I'll be back on the first Thursday of October, October 7th to be exact, with musical biographer and filmmaker Tom Roche. We'll be discussing, among other things, NOLA, the documentary he's making about Professor Longhair. So have a great evening, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to being with you all next month and take care of each other. Now is a time for kindness, compassion, and tolerance. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.